we were talking about it doesn't quite matter how lovely your lovely in-laws are when you have to stay with them because of academic jobs. It's yes, it's lovely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Lovely. <laughs> I would even extend that to not just in-laws, but having had a weekend with my parents. Just how how was Susie? <laughs> oh, Susie was excellent. She had a great time. Um, we had a wonderful moment. We went to a very nice dinner at Stravagan and she ordered mussels and then decided she couldn't be bothered to eat them all and was very outraged when they were like, no, we don't have a doggy bag for mussels. <laughs> so she'd, uh, she was just very disappointed. Oh, man. Could you imagine how manky those mussels would be? You know what she did? She went next door to, um, there's like a chicken, the chicken place next door. And she was like, have you got any Tupperware? And they were like, we've got a cardboard box. She's like... I probably wouldn't hold the soup. So <laughs> I That's just fucking, I don't know, salmonella. Iconic. <laughs> um, iconic and salmonella. Like, well, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. ready to happen. <laughs> no, that's the same. Mm. I think my mother's getting more and more eccentric the last time I spend with her. Um, so nice. that's probably the same for Susie. I don't know. Yes, I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It just happens. <laughs> COVID has allowed people to truly be themselves in their yes. own environment. And now they are coming out of their own environment. And I I know I'm just as bad. We're, we're all kind of going, oh, we're not socialized anymore. No, I don't remember how to function. Yeah. <laughs> like she was asking for Tupperware. My stepdad was trying to sneakily vape under the table and it's just plumes of smoke coming out. And you're like, it's not subtle. He's like, can you see it? I was like, yes, <laughs> go outside. What are you doing? <laughs> on the other hand, my parents went full on zombie apocalypse prep. Like Jim was that guy that, you know, got all the toilet roll in and nice. they bought an extra freezer and all, all that stuff. But I suppose <laughs> my mother today was outraged that um, they were trying to get their, their shop from a obviously, because obviously, and um, they couldn't get anything frozen because the dry ice, they can't, they just can't get it. They can't supply it. So they had, she had to step foot in the supermarket today and she was outrageous. Not, I mean, it was, it was still Waitrose because obviously, um, obviously. but Fuck me. Like, honestly, <laughs> like, exacerbated all the natural tendencies. Um, oh, if there's a shortage of dry ice, can you imagine how dodgy nightclubs are going to be? Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> there's nothing to kind of obfuscate everyone. Fuck me. I mean... Wasn't there a time when they said that they they could have nightclubs open, but they couldn't play music? Wasn't that a thing at one point? I was like, what is the point? Oh, man. Of being in like a vomit-filled room without any kind of music, at least. <laughs> Praxis. Cool. I will do the intro. Just get it up, because obviously I need that. I really, really want one of you to have a tiny keyboard. <laughs> this is quite small. I don't for, know. for the intro. Do, 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 oh do, no. Do, do, do. Oh Wait. no no, we have a different intro. This is this is the, the official bio intro. Yeah, we yeah. then have the methodology kazoo. Awful. I'm sorry. Um okay. Hello and welcome to Law My Praxis. Today we're talk we'll be talking about an area of the humanities that we all claim to understand, but that very few people actually do. The digital humanities. So we're joined by someone who seems to know what they're talking about, Dr. Kate Simpson. I presume. I didn't write that bit, Alex. I didn't like that. Yeah, I added it. Yeah, I didn't. I, I don't approve of it. Dr. Simpson <laughs> is a lecturer in information studies at the University of Glasgow. Kate's research focuses on 19th century 
European exploration in Africa and India with a focus on digital cultural creation and curation. You wrote this. I love this. <laughs> I know, but I can't fucking say it. It's a lot, there's a lot of C's in there. Focuses on digital cultural creation and curation. Why is that so Say it five times. Why is that so hard for me to say? Fucking hell. Because you're very dyslexic. And yeah, yeah. um, she's... Sorry, Kate. She is a project scholar for, for Livingston Online, which explores the life and legacy of Victorian explorer and missionary David Livingston and those he worked with. But she's particularly interested in the role of women in these explorations of East Africa. Really sorry for absolutely butchering that. <laughs> <laughs> but welcome. You're welcome. Um, Thank you very much. Yeah, was that more or less okay? Or I mean, ignoring with the delivery. but the- in digital cultural curation and creation. Oh yes, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. It, Got to take a breath first. It's just hard, and they're so similar, kind of. And they all look the same. Letters yeah. wise, and have I mentioned on this podcast that I'm dyslexic? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Literally every episode, um, every single episode, every single. Well, then you did an outstanding job because fifty percent of that was proper academic ease waffle. When, uh, yeah, someone says, what do you actually do? And you explain it. And then they go away thinking, I know less than I did when I started. <laughs> I mean, that's standard. And I think I think that's also maybe a thing with, like, digital humanities, because everyone's like, oh, I do that. And they don't. <laughs> yes. So so in, in your professional opinion, mm-hmm. what, what is the digital humanities? Ooh, right Ooh. in there with the gnarly question. <laughs> Like we we spend a lot of time on Twitter. Yeah, a lot of time. It's, is that digital humanities? Well, yes, digital humanities yes. is 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 threefold, and you okay. have both scored straight away with the first one, which Ooh. is it primarily it allows us to communicate just with everyone about what we do, about mm-hmm. everything, sometimes correctly and and sometimes incorrectly, <laughs> but it allows us to have conversations about the humanities in in multivariant environments. Ooh. And by multivariant environments, do you mean memes? <laughs> yes, I have, I have given a lecture using memes and it was Excellent. the most joy I think I've ever had. <laughs> I have just this morning uh, created uh, a, a hidden Easter egg in one of my course materials, which is the welcome note to my big, big module of 450 students, which is a link to Rickroll. Um, so I'm very excited for that to kind of happen. And I, I, I anticipate getting a lot of emails from students being like, what the fuck have you done? I thought this was about poetry. Why am I watching Rick Astley? I'm paying nine <laughs> grand a year for this. And I got fucking Rickroll. I got Rickrolled. <laughs> you so have exciting. no idea how long I spent making a meme of me and David Livingston <laughs> of Keanu Reeves and Carrie, I can't remember her second name, in, in The Matrix uh-huh. for Digital Humanities. And, <laughs> and I feel bereft if I can't use that meme at least once each year. And every time I use it, the silence is astounding. <laughs> I mean, is The Matrix, the Matrix, Gen Z don't know, they don't know about The Matrix, do they? Like, isn't it, well, is it they a bit really old? know about memes now they do they do i would say we're moving slightly beyond memes to using kind of tiktok videos Mm -hmm. and small kind of snippets of people doing stuff Mm -hmm. as as opposed to the more the more static static memes yeah i once um i used to set a course um activity at the end of a module which was to create a meme of the module 
And uh, it was honestly excellent in terms of the amount of shit that came into my inbox that made me cry with laughter whilst marking. Uh, <laughs> so good. I highly recommend it to be to anybody out there looking for how to fill their final seminar of the year. I uh, am yeah. deeply tempted now. Like, oh, well, you, t- you totally should. I, what, sensing the Victorians? Could you imagine? It's, it's called embodied Victorians, actually. Oh, even better. But, uh, yeah. No, um, I used to do a, a lecture on poetry poetics at Glasgow, which is uh, teaching poetic meter through meme. And it was great because, like, you said there was silence. Yes, there was silence, but also the slowly taking out the phone to obviously end up on fucking Snapchat or something. <laughs> like, and then, Just click. Yeah, and then, and then like, it goes full circle as the lecturer, be- the lecturer on memes becomes the meme. And yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But memes are brilliant because memes tell you so much about the person that created them and, and you know, what they're interested in and, and what they think about. And, and clearly for me, The Matrix is somewhat dating me in time. <gasps> digital scholar of the digital humanities but okay so that was number one in terms of digital humanities the use of twitter and memes and tiktok uh what's you said you said threefold what's the what's twofold the ability to share our research and communicate and the second one is a means for us to calculate or or compute our humanities research um, and in that in that very wide kind of bracket involves distant reading allowing us to do um, in explorations across corpuses to find things that we wouldn't be able to find otherwise to allow us to tell narratives that we possibly wouldn't usually be able to tell because it's very hard for one person in one room to be simultaneously also in archives in uh Cape Town, Oxford, and Edinburgh all at the same time. And it's that, it's that functionality that it gives us as humanities researchers, which is intrinsic to, to digital humanities research. It's just being savvy enough to acknowledge the tools that you're using to do that research. And in the process of doing that, being aware that they are affecting your research. What's the coolest thing you found as part of your research? David Livingstone, the explorer, had a poodle called Chitain. Yes, this is excellent content. Not only did he have a poodle called Chitain, but obviously this is this is in uh, Zambia and Zimbabwe, uh, so places where one's poodle cannot be groomed to craft standards. <laughs> so Chitain looked the same at the front and the back. <laughs> And Livingston wrote about how awesome it was because they would go to villages and his poodle, Chitain, would scare the bejesus out of the local dogs because they didn't know which end. <laughs> so we Excellent. have an awesome poodle who, who went quite uh, sandy, reddish coloured over time because of the sun. And then, and then here's the sad part. Here's your littlest hobo part. Chitain drowned trying to help people cross a river that was quite high in flood. So people were crossing the river and Chitain kept going back in the river. And obviously, eventually the dog tired itself out. (sighs) Oh, Chitain, that's incredible. And drowned. No. 
So oh. there's a story with highs and lows for you. I, I honestly, I've been on such an emotional whirlwind in this last two seconds. <laughs> I mean, I think we're going to have to put a content warning, like you know, the whole <laughs> website of "Does the dog die?" Do you know about that? Where people put in like certain films, and it tells you if the dog dies. I mean, that's the kind of trauma that I need warned about. To be honest, <laughs> content note. Content note: the dog dies. Um, oh, okay. Um, yeah, and the th- what was the third one then? And sorry, back to digital humanities. Come back to me on what the third one was. <laughs> Find out later this episode. Find out later, yeah. <laughs> or through the magic of editing. By which I mean... This is a timely contribution to research. Okay, so um, maybe it'll help then if we get a sense more of like your approach to your work. So this is our, um, as we said, we like to curate a jingle for mm-hmm, our guests. Mm-hmm. And because we have no musical talent and also no um, money to access musical rights, we use a kazoo. So the, the name of the game is... Kazoo. The methodology kazoo, sorry. So the, the name of the game is Name That Tune. Um, we have selected a song that we will attempt to perform on the kazoo. You have to name the song and uh, why it might be relevant to your work. Um, If it helps, 90% of people do not guess their kazoo. (laughs) Okay, right, let's see how this goes. My dog may also burst into the room because she finds the kazoo very entertaining. So that was... Uh, Shakira, Shakira. Shakira, Shakira, waka waka, it's time for Africa. Why is this perhaps of any relevance to your work? Because my work is using digital humanities tools to try and uncover more of the stories that are tangential to many of the histories that we have in our kind of Western hegemonic narrative of, of our, our heritage. I mean, one of the things that I always find deeply interesting about the humanities is history is is essentially fact. It's when we turn it into our heritage and start telling stories from it that it becomes a, a very weird beast indeed. And there are two things that I found really interesting about Livingston. One was that this idea that one man on his own walked across the continent of Africa, you know, day tripping with a backpack on, carrying everything he needed, and he was absolutely fine, didn't speak to anyone, found a geographical revelation at every turn in the path, and then went to the other side, and everyone went, oh, bravo, he did it on his own. Amazing. Occasionally, he may have seen an African male. Did he ever see an African woman? No. No, never. These mentions of, of women are so few and far between, and so often... If anyone does mention them, they are they are objects. They are they are not real people. They are not being given a name. They've not been given any kind of depth and and individualism. And that that just made me angry, for want of a better word. 
earlier on, you asked me if I had found anything particularly interesting, and I, I told you about Livingston's Poodle. But the one that really hit hardest was um, I'm also a trustee of the David Livingston Centre, which is a museum in Blantyre. And I had been looking at some of the objects that they had in their collection, which don't really have a provenance. So, for example, uh, the one that I've done most work on is a lip ring. So its understanding is that it, it is a lip ring. And there, you know, we, we know its function, but we don't know anything else about it. I started searching across catalogues because one of the things about this object that a woman had been wearing that she was forced to take out of her mm, body mm-hmm. to give to a man, which just drives me insane, was that it had a date on it. So everything that we knew about this had like, it was like kind of scored with its colonial violence. So I started looking across archives to see if I could find anything about it. And I actually found one archive that had a letter from Livingston to his daughter, which was essentially a jokey letter saying, oh, you know, I've got this lip ring. I made a woman take it out of her mouth. And she seemed really upset to part with it because, and I quote, um, it made her brave. It So. Oh my God. (laughs) Forces this woman to part with this lip ring. And yeah. (laughs) Well, that's outrageous. Mm -hmm. And then it comes, it's allowed to stay in the story as this present from this man to his daughter. Mm. So his daughter, Agnes's name is on this lip ring, not the woman whose mouth it came out of. Yeah. Nothing at all to do with her. And I then found, I started to look across other things to see what I could find. And he spends about a month going, I don't mean to be childish here, but is essentially, lip rings are weird. These women wear lip rings. <laughs> Why would they do that? And That's a strange tell- and different ew. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can tell the ones that are, are, are posher women, though, because their lip rings are made of ivory, whereas poorer women have lip rings made of tin or, or some form of gird that's been dried. But, okay, so not only have you taken this woman's lip ring, but it's an ivory lip ring. Mm. So we know this is a woman oh. of high status mm-hmm. who has been forced to take something out of her mouth in a way that we don't really know anything about, but there is strongly a suggestion of if not violence, then a, a level of coercion that meant someone couldn't refuse. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it was just these wee nuggets. And John Lutz, I think it is, talks about slow scholarship, whereby you spend absolutely ages on something because you get a a kind of, to use Gertz's, uh, a more thickly descriptive understanding of the object. So I thought ooh, I'm going to take that and I'm going to do slow digital humanities. So I'm going to have a thing and then I'm going to keep looking for that thing until I can look for that thing no more and see if I can kind of bring things together almost like a palimpsest. So I have the lip ring. What's written on the lip ring? Can I find out anything about where the lip ring is from? Can I find out a date? Does anyone else talk about it? Can can I get something richer? And I mean, I'm. it's too far from the time. Certain information wasn't kept. 
we're never going to know who she was. But I feel like a little bit of her has been returned to the lip ring. You know, the, the owner has been allowed to have some kind of agency in this jewelry. You know, if someone walked up to me and said, oh, like your earrings, give them to me. Just, it's, it's utterly, yeah, mind-blowing. Yeah, it's, it's, and also, I mean, this might be like another naive sort of implication thing that, but, you know, if, if you can do that to someone of a high status, then what are these colonial people doing to every other person out there during these missions? Like, this is the stuff we know about, like, so coercion probably was going on with literally everyone and could have other forms. I don't know if you get that in any of Livingston's writing. I don't, admittedly, I did not like the sort of Livingston um exploration type stuff when we did it at masters and i did not read it <laughs> so uh, like i mean are there significant misbehaviors going on in livingston's work um that you can think of do you want to track my interest in livingston though first you were talking about not wanting to read it at masters and i'm just going to come at it a different way for do you it, do it. so my postgrad was in Imperial Adventure Romance. So cool. Kipling, Haggard, <laughs> Conrad. Lads. The big boys. Lads, lads, lads. All the lads. Lads, lads, lads. <laughs> Let's discover, quote, unquote. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And Haggard had this really weird relationship with Theophilus Shepston, who was the governor for Native Affairs in South Africa, and came up with a, a very eerily similar and specific to a partite method of managing lands and people who lived on the lands. Now, Haggard thought that Shepston was, he had a dad, but he thought Shepston was the dad he never had and that Shepston loved him better than anyone. And you have these stories of H. Ryder Haggard sitting around a campfire with, with Cecil Rhodes, he had some good ideas, apparently. And <laughs> Shepston, who was, and I'm thinking, how, how do people reach the point where their mindset is totally of that, this is absolutely the right thing to do with no questions? Um, and one of the guys who worked with Shepston, this is where it all links, one of the guys who works with Shepston was Thomas Baines, who was very famous watercolorist of the 19th century, um, was on multiple expeditions all over Africa, Australasia, and did did really evocative watercolors and actually very brilliantly for me was fond of drawing women in the background so ah. i've been yeah, of course background though yeah yeah, yeah. obviously yeah, yeah. Like, obviously come yeah. on guys calm yourself alex um, <laughs> baines went on uh livingston's second exhibition to the zambezi uh they fell out because livingston's thought baines was low uh, what was it a bit work shy and what is your dog doing sorry there's something in the bin um <laughs> can you get the dog away <laughs> carry on <laughs> we're at the zambezi we're at the zambezi we're all there together and uh Baines and other members of the expedition are all getting sick and getting malaria. And- <laughs> 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 
<laughs> She's coming the other door. <laughs> we won't edit this. It's too good. Okay, sorry. <laughs> oh, sorry. Okay. That was brilliant. The pressure's off. You feel it. This is Grant Capture. Baines expedition, go. Uh, yes, Livingston thought Baines was quite work shy. You know, the fact that he had malaria was beside the point. <laughs> so lazy. Uh, he, uh, he also, Livingston got really weird with Baines and said, because you're part of the expedition, you can't draw pictures of people I don't like. Okay. So all, all your drawings belong to the British government and the expedition. And obviously, Baines as an artist went, well, that's a little bit bullshit. You know, I do my work for the... So, yes, they had a falling out, and so Baines left the expedition and then spent a seriously long amount of time trying to clear his name, because Livingston, obviously. But prior prior to the Haggard era, you have, you have Livingston thinking, well, why did he go out there? What did he do? And it is that desire to... I see so much of me thinks like get out of Scotland. <laughs> he, had, he had a really, really hard life. And he did, and people do say, oh, Livingston, you know, he had a plan to be a missionary in Africa, and his soon-to-be uh, future father-in-law said, There's the smoke of a thousand villages waiting to be converted to Christianity. And that's not actually true, because Livingston was like, Oh yeah, I'll go to China. And they went, You can't go to the China because the opium wars that we started mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we've not done anything bad in africa so you could go there yeah. <laughs> well, that, they tried to send him to the west indies and he went oh no there's too many missionaries there already that's how he ultimately ended up in no that's that's already been colonized yeah. <laughs> I, want <laughs> I want to discover things mm-hmm. yeah what he was much more a an adventurer than he was a missionary mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like definitely this is a man who just wanted to go and see what was around the next corner, mm-hmm. which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But when that man then becomes totemic of all future colonization and imperial behavior in, in Africa, then he becomes a seriously problematic mm-hmm. wee soldier. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And one so- of the things that he did was to get money, he kept trying to prove what value there was. So he would take jewelry from people he would uh-huh. have you know places that were particularly good at ironwork or beadwork he would he would acquire things so that he could come back to the uk and go look at all these things they can make if we have trade routes with them you know we'll make money christianity commerce and civilization and that's why we have the jewelry awesome there's kind of a slightly different like perspective in some ways rather than it being purely about the raw materials I, i've not really heard of that before in terms of it's the cultural artifacts that also prompted that kind of commerce relationship from what i i, I, I do a bit of resource culture stuff um so for me it's the stuff i know is it's more about those like raw materials like the gold or the the different kind of um copper and all that kind of stuff if you're thinking about them zimbabwe and uh, around that kind of area but that's yeah that's kind of interesting i didn't realize that there was a sort of sense of like oh actually they they can produce these beautiful goods that we can then perhaps sell or is it also a sense of like they're making beads but we can make them better like well 
two things that, that he did try for the raw materials one so on the second zambezi expedition you know he keeps saying to uh richard thornton the the geologist go find coal <laughs> I'm, I'm having real difficulty finding coal Go find coal. Go find it. Further. Come on, for goodness sake. Oh. Yeah, dig deeper. Come on. <laughs> Fuck's sake. And on the other side, there is still this, this missionary character who is constantly trying to justify his presence there. And, and it's interesting that he very early on realized that people would be best converted by their own people. So, for example, translating the Bible into Swana so that people could read it for themselves and thinking that, yes, people would be best converted by by hearing their own culture's interpretation of the Bible. He was absolutely up for that. And that goes hand in hand with look at, look at these people who are... Oh, God, I hate this phrase, but <laughs> waiting to be civilized. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Such potential. Haggard called um, the Zulu people the Romans of the South because he uh-huh. was certain because they were so violent and they couldn't be civilized, they would ultimately die off. You know, civilizational <laughs> integrity and all that. I took that in a very different way. I was like, oh, that's actually it's kind of in terms of colonial descriptions to compare something to a Roman is, isn't that bad. Oh, but now I, now I see it's not right. The fall of <laughs> empire <laughs> Roman as opposed to the... Yeah, as opposed to sort of like founding of civilization Roman. Mm-hmm. I get you, I get you. Yeah, okay, cool. That makes more sense. <laughs> Way more sense. <laughs> Summer teaching prep be like... Sometimes all I think about is you Late nights in the middle of June But so you, you've mentioned the kind of like the gendered aspect of this sort of heroic male individual can women also be considered like explorers and heroes in this period or are they just colonizers like do they also get that kind of adventure spin they can't be considered explorers and heroes um because that contemporary victorian society with such uh filters as john murray the publisher was not allowed to see them as such. I mean, famously, Livingston's wife, Mary Moffat, was absolutely decimated by the press because she had the audacity to be herself. Uh, Famously, she went to a dinner at the RGS um, and her husband wasn't there. And when they gave the toast to her husband, she stood up to take it. And the room was an uproar. How dare she stand up and... (laughs) And this this is the thing about why the digital has become so vital and the forensic to my research is that these women are there, but they're just so scattered. They don't seem to have been given the right to exist by themselves in the record that we have to look for them like against the grain and across things. And you find out that when Livingston initially went north from Kuruman, where his father-in-law's missionary station was, the groups that he were meeting was going, were asking, you know, well, where's Mary? Where's the woman that can speak the six languages, who's the daughter of, of Robert Moffat, who's the one we respect, who was born and brought up here. So she she was able to allow him access to certain social groups 
that he wouldn't have had access to otherwise. I mean, there is the other side of that, which is Livingston went, well, if I take my wife and kids, no one will think I'm there to kill them. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Okay. Indeed. But that socio-political aspect just is so frequently ignored. It's when you look at Mary Slessor, the famous um, adventurer that she is, there's always this idea, oh, bless her, she went out and was Florence Nightingale. It's like, well, no, this woman was doing it all in heels with a petticoat on, yeah. meeting people. But at, at heart, though, whether male or female, it is still an aggressive form of exploration that still doesn't sit well. So, in a sense then, because the women were still there, but they're not necessarily in the record. So that's why you work with manuscripts instead of woman manuscripts. That's Alex's, oh. I stole it. <laughs> deep. Deep, very deep. Um, you know that silence, that crushing silence we were talking about earlier? Yeah. It just yeah. happened. No, just happened. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But I was, I was inter- like, I'd like to go back to um, when you're saying rights of writer Haggard and stuff. So in Haggard, in King Solomon's Minds, there's some really interesting geographies slash cartographies. I'm thinking about like the Boob Mountains, um, so interested. So interested in the Boob Mountains. Um, for those who don't know about the Boob Mountains, I'm going to say Boob Mountains as many times as I can. Um, they're the mountains described in King Solomon's mind are just shamelessly a pair of boobs. Um, but there's a, there's a discourse, isn't there, in sort of Victorian exploration where it has to almost be kind of mapped on the female body in terms of metaphor. Does that happen in Livingston as well? Like, why is 19th century exploration culture so pervy? <laughs> well, yeah, you and you have you have two kinds of of weird fetishization of both the landscape and the people. On one hand, you have the deeply, deeply homoerotic uh, fetishization of of people like H. M. Stanley and famously My Kalulu, Prince and Save, where it's the body becomes representative of all and and bodies are oiled and glistening and and people become totally dehumanized and and violence is is deep and meaningful and both sides want it and and there is an accepted agreement and you're you're one step away from, you know, this is this is SM porn that you are essentially writing. And it's that it's kind of that wee man with a chip on his shoulder. Mm. That that yeah. type of writing is is very much a I'm in charge and I'm I'm the bigger person. <clears throat> so they're People all like, incels. Tops. Nineteenth century explorers are incels, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then some of them have this. Yes, this kind of brotherhood of the romantic style that Haggard has of these women who are throughout time. So Haggard is very, very keen that there are some women who are so beautiful and so significant that they continue to be reborn, Mm -hmm. Aisha famously, over and over again. And 
part of that with Haggard was his first love didn't love him. <laughs> and very, very sad for her, actually. She ended up um, getting syphilis from her husband, who the, the man she chose to marry, and Haggard actually supported her and her family after he died, and, and she got syphilis as well. Um, I don't know much more of that story, but yes, and Haggard talks about... I looked through the bar and candlelight and I saw her in the distance and I knew not to go to her. And did you just think, she didn't fancy it. Haggard <laughs> 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 was friend zoned. <laughs> Amazing. And so he continues this, this romanticized notion of this kind of caring, but also prophetic behavior, you know, this... I'm mastering this by, and yes, I realize we're on a podcast and I keep doing this. <laughs> you know, I've got the hand. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and it's, it's, it's domination by supplication of, of the land or the environment with Haggard. You don't really get that with Livingston. Livingston's a bit of an Prude. odd box. I, he didn't, he wasn't actually planning to, to marry at all, which is why, you know, the whole relationship with he and Mary was actually one of love and their their letters are very, very sweet to each other. He says things like, the house is too big and there's no furniture, but it will be full when you are here because it is filled with love and all very sweet things. But prior to that, and you know, people would say things like, oh, Livingston looked at my wife and and this is, again, a, a direct quote. I have as much affection for that man's wife as I do for my grandmother's cat. And he wasn't a cat person. <laughs> Incredible. I mean, I think this takes us kind of slightly neatly into uh, one of the things that we normally ask for as part of the, co- the podcast to kind of get more of a sense again about you as a researcher, which is uh, your academic Tinder bio. Um, so do you, do you have one to hand? If you were to meet us at a conference, how would you uh, seduce us, get us on side in terms of wanting to find out more? I feel like as lovable as his, a grandma's cat is quite a good tagline. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, Or Ryder Haggard, that's it. This is the start of term, so can we actually go for a haggard rider? Yes. Nice, yeah, there we go. <laughs> I I think mine would be you show me your manuscripts, I'll show you my digital archive. Oh, oh nice. that's better than our shit will manuscripts joke. <laughs> Alex's shit one that I said. Um. <laughs> because you thought it was good enough to say out loud. No. No, fine. No, no. no, but no, I like that because I like the, um, I like the idea that you're going to do something with that manuscript, like that you know, you're the active person in that, in that sort of I also like exchange. So the top, then, yeah, yeah definitely exactly. the top, top, top. <laughs> definitely the top. Um, which... Topping the archive is definitely a talk that you need to do at one point. Oh, yes. <laughs> Okay, well, that, that's the Tinder bio. That's <laughs> Topping the archive. Topping the archive. Excellent. I love it. I love it. Yes. No, I love it. Um, Topping the archive. 
Um, sorry. Um, we'll just take a moment to absorb that before we move on. Wonderful. And that there was the sound of our research impact. Um, so we've got that we're going to move on to a completely unrelated question, I'm afraid. But it's like, <laughs> as we're talking about talking in the archive, I'm like, oh, do I really want to talk about this? Um, but anyway, Livingston's little girl. <laughs> <laughs> All right, okay. <laughs> to be fair, it's the next question. It just doesn't fit. <laughs> um, why was she so, you know, important slash ignored? Like, why did he seem to cut any sort of women from his biography? Like, obviously, his wife is just better than him. But what about his little girl? <laughs> well, Agnes is absolutely... The little girl, sorry. On, on a totally separate note, Agnes is absolutely awesome because she was one of the two people that set up the Scottish Geographical Society. Oh, mm. nice. Royal Geographical Society said, no, you can't play. And she went, fine, we'll do our own gang. <laughs> with, with blackjack and hookers. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the thing. Oh, Livingston, no. after everything I've said about him, he does mention women. Okay. He mentions women quite a lot, but they get somewhat excised from the record. Mm. You have you have John Murray and you have the man that uh, Livingston calls the Red Pen Man who comes along and, and very actively, ooh, this is not a word, but Victorianifies. Oh, Louise. Totally a word. Totally a word. <laughs> That's fine. Well... We'll use that. that. Yeah, that takes his writings and makes them a very specific type of narrative. And this is this you have these men with these ideas reifying other men during this particular period in time, you know, early Victorian to late Victorian. And they're constantly pushing each other to this similar type of behavior. And it doesn't necessarily represent everyone that was within that environment at that particular moment in time. Mm. Like Livingston at one point writes to John Murray, his publisher, let's put some more tables in the back of of missionary travels to make it look more scientific. Mm. Mm. And therefore justifiable. Yeah. And then on the other hand, he's talking about uh, women breastfeeding and Murray's, oh, you can't have that. Mm, no. Can't the only boobs allowed here are mountains. Boob mountains. Boob mountains. That's Shakira. Yeah. <laughs> that is Shakira. Oh my god. It was and humble, so you don't mistake them. From mountains. mountains. Incredible. Yeah. What a line. What a line. <laughs> that is. That might be one of my karaoke songs. Um, so, so who was the who was the little girl? What was she? What was her role in Livingston's story? Livingston's daughter Agnes was just well, not was just was the one of his five children who he had most affection for. I think. <laughs> nice. Um, not yeah. That's probably a bad way to put it. Who had he had the most engagement with? Mm. So he had a difficult relationship with his boys, um, one of whom, the the oldest, uh, Robert, ended up dying in the Civil War in America. Oh. 
at the age of 19, having fought on both sides, having sent a letter to his dad saying, don't worry, I haven't embarrassed you. I changed my name. So no one knew that I was your son. And uh, I always shot high. So yay. <laughs> this, this boy, okay. is, you know, oh, I don't want to upset you and your famous image, dad. So I'm just going to yeah, really weird, horrible existence. But recently I came across some letters where Livingston was surreptitiously trying to find information out about his son through American missionaries and the American clergy because his son was in um, prisoner of war camps. That's how he fought for both sides. You know, that classic thing, the Civil War. You can stay in the camp or you can fight for us now. And, and was trying to find his son before he died. But just these whole relation, familial relationships, which were allowed to be put on the back burner. And even now, I've forgotten the name of the charity, but the Church of England still has a charity for women and spouses of clergy, because when clergy choose to move, the neither the church nor the government has a responsibility to look after the women or the children. And I was utterly gobsmacked to find this out recently. So you can change parish or decide to do something else. And then there are suddenly, well, to, to use what's probably the normative example, a, a woman with children is then left. She gets no support from either the organization that her family have devoted their lives to, nor from the government because they are considered a special case. And that's exactly what happened with Mary was she came back to the UK and everyone went, they're not our responsibility. So there's this woman who has never lived in the UK coming from Southern Africa with her children, totally different lived environment, and no one's willing to help or support her because, you know, kind of everyone passes the buck. Just a really, really, yes, shitty life. For <laughs> in my professional opinion, it's yeah. a shitty existence. Because they do such amazing things, you know, like yeah. Livingston's, okay, he's he's building houses and he's helping uh, create uh, forms of agriculture and canals. But Mary is getting up in the morning, making soap and candles and food and, and looking after her family. And, and actually she was pregnant so often when they, they were together. Livingston called her, and this is a terrible phrase, his Irish manufactory. <laughs> that is disgusting. No, 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 thank you. People at the time, and famously, I can't remember the name of the, the doctor, recommended the, the pull-out method of contraception. Oh, yes. And Livingston talked about it and went, well, we're not going to do that. <laughs> that would... so his wife is almost constantly pregnant. She's doing all this. And she runs a school for up to 80 kids in the afternoon. And then... Come evening, you know, she goes back and and is and is still the housewife, and and the kids are being also dragged around behind at the same time. Mm -hmm. So, I think Agnes, the small girl, is emblematic of of quite how difficult so many of these women had it. It's just that Agnes is dead lucky because she then had the capacity within 
the Scottish kind of socio-cultural environment to stand slightly on our own two feet and go Scottish mm. Royal Geographical Society and and kind Thank of you very much. her own existence separate mm-hmm. from from the men that were in her life. Yeah, oh, yeah we, we should all live our lives like Agnes. I mean, not the first part, but that second part is good. <laughs> <laughs> so can you, can you tell us something, what, what's a petticoat government and can we vote for one? Is that, is that a thing? <laughs> and she smiled at me and she put my hand on her shoulder and she seemed to say, now my little man, just do as the others have done and come with me. And that was uh, Menenko, who was a chief um, on, the, on the Zambezi River. And Livingston called her um, a petticoat government, um, mm. by which he meant that she was making the rules, but some of those rules were superfluous or fluffy rules that she just made because oh, the she women's. was a woman. Mm-hmm. Yes. Things like reproductive health. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. women just we just go for such frivolous laws. <laughs> I know, right? Imagine, oh like you know, wanting control over your own body right now. Imagine. Outrageous. Tim Geel, writer of what is the eponymous biography of David Livingston, writes that the reason that he was held up by Menenko was Menenko was on her period for eight days, so no one could move. <laughs> Sake, man. Incredible. And I have, I mean, I have been doing this stuff for a long time and I've looked at a lot of digital archives. No, nowhere does it say that. That is just a man going, eight days. Well, that's roughly, oh, it'll have been because she's on her. Be. Yes, because she'll have gone, oh, no, nah, I'm not moving. I'm watching Netflix. And Yes. Wow. <laughs> wow. What a prick. <laughs> Apparently he is as well, but I couldn't comment possibly because I haven't met him. Oh, I think we're allowed to. I had an it? almost stand-up argument with Tom Devine though, which I consider like almost Ooh. my claim to fame. <laughs> <laughs> Funnily enough, we disagreed on Livingston. Oh. Outrageous! I'm, I'm, I can't possibly see why. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, shit, Malenko's got a period again. Everybody stop. What were some of the actual rules and things or what, what classified as petticoatness in the kind of fluffy affect that you're just talking about then? Uh, it seemed to be women who stymied men doing what they wanted to do straight away. And often when you actually kind of read kind of slightly tangentially across the letters you always find out that there is a reason anytime they're held up by women there's a reason at the mouth of the Zambezi there was this old woman and she was always there and she had according to Livingston she had better geographical knowledge of the area than any of the Europeans who'd been before and she's standing there going there are falls up the river that you cannot get past um what we now know as the Cabrassa Falls you can't get a boat past them Livingston's kind of going. She's on a period. Don't listen to her. Yeah. <laughs> Even though she's old and definitely old. past it. Yeah. <laughs> well, then you can make some sort of horrible racial eugenics joke because I mean they're Victorians. They probably think that they menstruate for longer as well. It's true. Mm-hmm. It's true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
That's so. You have the lives of these women who are actively involved in in the environment in a way that I think is really interesting history to tell now because it's so contemporarily resonant. You know, we we get stories in the paper and and they're never the whole truth and isn't it not much more interesting to know it wasn't one guy dressed from rohan with a knapsack on but actually Mm -hmm. a group of 60 people some of which formed such close bonds with him they stayed until until he died and then carried his body for seven months Mm -hmm. like that's that friendship is so significant and has so much importance that Halima, who was um, Livingston manumitted her, so he bought her out of slavery. Um, There is some ambiguity about whether she knew that she had been bought out of slavery or whether she thought she had just been bought. Uh, Yeah, Yeah. you might want to clear that up. (laughs) But she was a really terrible cook, but she also scared the bejesus out of Livingston, so he never told her. He just ate what she put in front of her. <laughs> That's that. amazing. I, I I love like the idea that maybe she knew though. Maybe she was like, oh, this is shit, but you're gonna eat it anyway. <laughs> oh, David hates these egg this egg dish. I'm excited to see what he does. Yeah. <laughs> amazing. But when he was just about to die, when he had lost most of his teeth, and you know, they had hugely run out of supplies all kinds of supplies and they were in the Bangawelo swamplands of what is modern day Zambia so really difficult terrain to cross but Halima still manages to keep this one bag separate from everyone else where she's ground up maize really really fine so um like toddler food so that David can have something to eat so she she looks after him and she provides a form of sustenance that that he can eat you know But she's not important in history, though. No. Look at his journals. She's paid the same as the boys. Oh, damn, girl. That is surprising. It's not our our heritage that we're telling ourselves. You know, it's not front and centre. And it should be much more interesting. Like, now we can stop being quite so precious about our knowledge and stop sitting in ivory towers and go, actually, what makes this much more kind of emphatic in understanding our story is that I can go find this out. You can mm-hmm. go look at these letters and find this out. And everyone can can get a greater understanding of, of how people live together. And the fact that they did live together, it's not some weirdo doing one thing. And that people had these like hugely disparate lives where they did funky things such as Mary Moffat Livingston standing up in the RGS and, t- and taking the, the, the toast. I, even now, there are some sectors of, of our society who would be uh-huh. affronted that a mm. woman would do that. I mean, look how recently it was before the um, female rector of St. Andrews was actually allowed to join the golf club. It's mm-hmm. like, yeah. And then you hear what's happening in Texas. Yeah. And you think, we are learning nothing, but maybe we would be more receptive if these stories were actually given to us in toto and that Mm -hmm. we could find all this stuff out for ourselves and we weren't just relying on a certain type of person publishing a book which then becomes an orthodoxy forever and immemorial. And is that the third point of what is digital humanities? 
It's the truth, baby. It's the yeah. truth. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Excellent. My draw. <laughs> Done. Um, just to finish up there, you mentioned really briefly um, that folk can find this stuff out um, for themselves. So how how might one find stuff out? And relatedly, do you have anything that you'd like to plug at the end of this podcast? Or is there... You know, Livingston Online, these sorts of things. Well, yeah, livingstononline.org, livingstononline, or one word, .org. Onemorevoice.org. Uh, one More Voice is run by my XPI, Adrian Wisnicki from the University of Lincoln, Nebraska. And we and anyone can contribute are collating stories of non-Western voices from the Victorian period. Great. I found something on Internet Archive the other day, which was a history of the Zulu people, which actually had a facsimile of Shaka Zulu's signature in it. Oh, wow. And it's just sitting on Internet Archive, which you can't, difficult to find. So, you know, that's bringing these things together in places like One More Voice, which not everything is open. There are always going to be, private collections and private collectors and we may not necessarily know what they have in their collections but the fun bit is being able to go well we know this thing is here so if you wanted to go look at it you could but in the meantime here are all these other things that we have access to you know the Archimedes palimpsest is is a prime example of a hugely significant manuscript which is held in various places. And then you bring it together and you go, ah, Eureka. <laughs> Thank you for laughing at that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got it. I got it. I'm there. I'm there. We've been Long My Praxis. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget, a five-star output deserves five-star reviews. No reviewer two comments, please. Shout out to our biggest fan and most consistent listener, my mother, Faye. You can get in touch with us by emailing longmypraxis at gmail.com or finding us on Twitter at longmypraxis. If you'd like to hear more from us, and why wouldn't you, you can now find bonus content through our Patreon page. Simply go to patreon.com slash longmypraxis for more juicy, world-leading, five-star content.